Good morning, church. I don't know why some songs just seem to give you more goosebumps than others. At, uh, that's one of those songs. So glad to see everyone here today. I know we're on the, uh, the downward side of spring break. Always good to see everyone. Um, I'm, I know you don't know, but trickling in the back door and hiding on the back row is Glenn and Diane Cogburn, who uh, mean so much to our congregation. Glenn preached, you've heard me say numerous times, between David Allen and me, he filled in here for about a year, and Glenn and Diane are here today, and said they'd like to take everybody to lunch. <laughs> oh. There's a flyer in your chairs about three big days coming up, um, very big days for us. On March 29, the dinner on the grounds and the egg hunt, we need you to kind of um, fill out uh, food forms so we know how much food to buy, but this church has been doing that for a long time and having an egg hunt. And then, of course, Easter Sunday, we'll have extended worship that day, no Bible classes, no worship. And then we're going to have an, another every member Sunday. We did that one other time and had about 580 people. So make plans to attend these three big events. Make plans to invite your friends. Make plans to invite people that are on the church roll. We'll talk about every member Sunday another time. But uh, I just wanted to uh, bring those to your attention. I love the story John Ortberg tells about Bob. He talks about Bob in his book, If You Want to Walk on Water, You've Got to Get Out of the Boat. And he writes, Doug Coe has a ministry in Washington, D.C. that mostly involves people in politics and government. An insurance salesman named Bob became a Christian and began to meet with Doug to learn about his new faith. One day, Bob came in all excited about a statement in the Bible where Jesus says, Ask whatever you will in my name and you shall receive it. Is that really true, Bob demanded? Doug explained, well, it's not a blank check. You've got to take it in the context of the teachings of the whole Scripture on prayer. But yes, it is true. Jesus really does answer prayer. Great, Bob said. Then I've got to start praying for something. I think I'll pray for Africa. That's kind of a broad target. Why don't you narrow it down to one country, Doug suggested. All right, I'll pray for Kenya. Do you know anything about Kenya? No. Have you ever been to Kenya? No. So Doug issued a challenge. He told Bob to pray for Kenya every day for six months. And if nothing remarkable happened, he'd pay him $500. If Bob didn't pray for Kenya every day, the challenge was off. So Bob began to pray, and for a long time, nothing happened. Then one night, he was at a dinner in Washington. As the people around the table explained what they did for a living, a woman explained that she ran the largest orphanage in Kenya. Bob roared to life and pounded her relentlessly with question after question. She said, you're obviously very interested in my country. Have you ever been to Kenya? No. You know someone in Kenya? No. Then how do you happen to be so curious, she asked. Bob explained that someone had challenged him to pray for Kenya, so she invited Bob to visit Kenya and tour the orphanage. So he did that. 
Upon returning to Washington, he couldn't get that orphanage out of his mind. He began to write large pharmaceutical companies describing to them this vast need. He reminded them that every year they would throw away millions of dollars worth of pharmaceutical and medical supplies. He said, why not send them to Kenya? And some of them did. And the orphanage received more than a million dollars worth of medical supplies. The woman called Bob up and said, Bob, this is amazing. We've had the most phenomenal gifts based on your prayers and the letters you wrote. Would you like to come back over and have a party with us? So Bob flew to Kenya again. While he was there, the president of Kenya came to the celebration because it was the largest orphanage in the country and offered to take Bob on a tour of Nairobi, the capital city. In the course of that tour, they saw a prison and Bob asked about a group of prisoners there. They're political prisoners, he was told. Bob said, that's a bad idea. You should let them out. Bob finished the tour and flew back home. Sometime later, he received a phone call from the State Department of the United States government. Is this Bob? Yes. Were you recently in Kenya? Yes. Did you make any statements to the president about political prisoners? Yes. What'd you say? I told him he should let them out. The State Department official explained that the department had been working for years to get the release of these prisoners to no avail, but now the prisoners had been released, and the State Department was told it had been largely because of Bob. So the government was calling to say, thanks. Several months later, the president of Kenya made a phone call to Bob. He was going to rearrange his government and select a new cabinet. Would Bob be willing to fly over and pray for him for three days while he worked on this important task? So Bob, who was not politically connected at all boarded a plane once again and flew back to Kenya where he prayed and asked God to give wisdom for the leader of that nation as he selected his government. I absolutely love this story. I love the story because Bob prayed. I love the story because Bob prayed, God, can you use me in some way? I love this story because he, he prayed, God, I just want to do something for you. I just want to be a witness for you. And so he prayed for Kenya, and God provided Bob with several opportunities, positive ways that he could be an influence for Jesus. But what happens when we pray for opportunities, and they're not what we would call positive? What happens when we pray for opportunities, and they might be unpleasant? What happens when we pray for opportunities, and maybe we get arrested, as Kenny prayed and told us about this morning, about Christians all over the world that continue to be arrested and bombed and killed. What happens when we pray for opportunities and those things happen? We're in a study of the book of Acts, and we've been basing that on Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, and Jesus says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you're going to be my witnesses, although He doesn't tell them where, and He doesn't tell them specifically where. He says, you know, it'll start in Jerusalem, and then you'll go to Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. But He doesn't give them what the specific opportunities to witness are going to be. He just says, I'm going to put you in situations, and I want you to be a witness for me. And what do you do when those situations aren't real positive? 
What do you do when those situations might get you arrested? What do you do as we've been reading through the book of Acts when persecution comes and when you're scattered and you have to leave your home? What do you do then? How do you approach those opportunities to be a witness for Jesus? In our text today, Paul's been arrested again. And he's going to be on trial again. And so we're going to see in a courtroom scene um, why Paul is on trial. But he tells us very succinctly, he says, I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. I'm here today because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's why he's arrested. You can drum up all kinds of charges. You can say whatever you want to about him. But Paul says, look, let's, let's just be very clear. I stand on trial because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And that didn't settle well with the crowd. As you can read, there's a great uproar. And they argued vigorously, and the dispute became so so violent, the commander was afraid. He's afraid Paul would be torn to pieces. They were going to rip him apart. They were going to tear him by the limbs because he was on trial for the resurrection of the dead. There's even a plot to kill Paul. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and they bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they'd killed Paul. More than 40 men participated in this. If you keep reading, they went to the chief priests and the elders and they said, you know, we've taken a solemn oath and we're not going to eat anything until we kill this guy. So here's what we want you to do. We want you to petition the commander to bring him up here. And on the way here, before he gets here, we'll kill him. I mean, they they want to get rid of him. They want to wipe him off the earth. They want him dead. So what do you do when those kind of opportunities come up? Because Paul's arrested. Paul's in chains. In fact, for the rest of the book of Acts, he's in chains. For the rest of the book of Acts, he's in jail. He's not getting out. And he's going to spend his time before some very important people defending himself and defending the gospel. So Paul ends up in Caesarea, and we're going to look in chapter 24. And and this is... This is big news. If this was today, this, everybody would want to be in the courtroom and the media would want to be there. And we're going to hire a, a high-powered attorney by the name of Tertullus. And, and we're going to do everything we can to get rid of Paul. And so here's what's going on in Acts 24. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. They brought their charges against Paul. When Paul was called in, Tertullus, this is his opening arguments. I mean, he, he pours it on. He tells Governor Felix, we've enjoyed a long period of peace under you. And your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation everywhere and in every way. Most excellent Felix. We acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I'd request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. I mean, he he just flatters this judge, this governor. He pours it on. He's doing it. I mean, this is as good as the movies right here. And he says, let me tell you about this troublemaker who's been stirring up riots. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. He tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about this guy. So he says, here's the charges. He's a troublemaker and he stirs up riots. But listen, Felix, judge, governor, you, you can get to the truth yourself. And he motions for Paul... And Paul gives his defense. Paul says, I'll gladly make my defense. My accusers didn't find me arguing with anyone in the temple or stirring up a crowd in a synagogue or anywhere else. 
and they cannot prove to you the charges they're now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection. That's why he's on trial. He keeps saying, there's some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here. They're the ones who drummed up these charges. They're nowhere to be found. They ought to be here. Or these men who stand here today, they should state what crime it is, unless it's when I shouted, it's concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. So what do you do when you're on trial for preaching the resurrection? In fact, Paul's preaching what we call good news, and it's stirring people up. How do you respond to that? It's kind of interesting because Paul's on trial for the resurrection. Paul's on trial. Paul's constantly on trial. And you should know that Christians are always on trial. We are always being watched by people of the world. We are always on trial. In fact, our study in the book of James in our adult classes, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials. Not only are you going to face trials, you're going to be on trial. And people are going to be watching. What kind of trials? Well, people are going to watch the trials we have in our marriages, the trials we have with our kids, the trials we have at work, the trials we have out in the world, the trials we have because we didn't get the promotion or we didn't get the raise, the trials in relationship. The, the world's going to be watching. We are constantly on trial. So how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond when the world is watching? You need to know that trials are an opportunity to witness for Jesus. Trials are an opportunity to witness for Jesus. This may surprise you, but I went to Chick-fil-A last night. And three of the kids that were working there were having a pretty tough day because they said three different customers had just verbally abused them using some choice profanity words. And they said, we're, you know, they were feeling pretty down about it. And, I said, and then they said, one of them said, hey, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I said, trials are an opportunity to witness for Jesus. So when people drive through or people come in and cuss you out, it's an opportunity for you to witness for Jesus. And one of them said, well, I said what we're supposed to say. I said, my pleasure. Listen, folks, trials, trials might not always be pleasant. Opportunities might not always be present, pleasant. There might be some painful situations. You might be dealing with hurt, but whatever situation you are in, you need to ask yourself, how can I use this situation as an opportunity to witness for Jesus? In fact, I find it interesting that Paul, in the midst of his arrest, in the midst of being in prison, in the midst of being in jail, looked at that as an opportunity to be a witness for Jesus. Look what he says in Philippians. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Paul. You're in prison. I know what has happened to me has enabled me to be, advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear that throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone, everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. 
Because of my chains, people are preaching more courageously and fearlessly. Because of my chains, I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. And in chapter 4, he says, All the saints send you greetings, especially those in Caesar's household. People in Caesar's household get to hear the good news about Jesus and the resurrection of the dead because of his opportunity to be in prison. Trials are an opportunity to still be a witness for Jesus. And Paul took advantage of those opportunities and he preached to people in prison and he preached to rulers and he preached to governors and he preached to Caesar's household. Oh, he could have just gone to prison and said, Woe is me. This is so bad. I can't believe this. He could have badmouthed some people. He could have gotten really upset. In fact, I've been reading a lot of articles about why are Christians so angry? We could say, why is the world angry? But why are Christians so angry? We get so bent out of shape. We seem to always want to lash out. We seem to always want to get verbal with people. And sometimes we even, sometimes we even get nasty ourselves when we feel like our rights are violated. And when we do that, when we lash out and we get verbal and we get nasty, we need to remember that during those times, we're still being witnesses for Jesus, just not very good ones. You know, you've heard the statement, everybody's an example, some are good and some are bad. Everybody's a witness, some are good and some are bad. Well, how should we respond when trials come our way? Well, according to 1 Peter 2, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. Philippians 2, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you can shine like stars in the universe. We're supposed to respond to those trials in positive ways so that we can be witnesses for Jesus. I used a quote from Jonathan Storman's book, How to Start a Riot. Several weeks ago, he said... How did we get to be known as the kind of people who are so arrogant and mean about what we think? Well, yeah, but Richie, our rights are violated. I understand that. But we need to... What was our scripture reading today? What were those two words I scribbled down from the scripture reading? We need to do it with gentleness and respect. That's not being nasty. That's not getting real verbal. I'm all for standing for our rights. I'm all for believing in the resurrection of the dead. But we don't have to be so angry. In fact, Patrick Mead had a two-part blog entitled, Why Do Believers Rage? He says, Why are Christians so angry? Why is it some Christians react with such anger and vitriol against other believers who happen to disagree with them on this or that point? With other believers. He doesn't even say we act with anger towards people outside the church. We act that way against one another. He continues, why do Christians respond so harshly to those with whom they disagree? It'd be easier to convince non-believers of the love and joy of Christ if believers stopped beating each other up in His name. Listen, folks, we're witnesses for Jesus. We're not here to defend our rights. We're here to defend Jesus. We're here to talk about Jesus. And Patrick Mead writes, the world is watching and it isn't impressed. The world's watching how we treat one another. The world's watching how we treat them. The world's watching how we treat our spouses. The world's watching how we treat our kids. The world's watching how we treat co-workers. The world's watching us in restaurants. The world's watching us. 
And what was it Jesus said? By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you get nasty and mean and arrogant with one another. No, if you love one another. That's being a witness for Jesus. The situations of life, the trials of life are going to come our way. You're going to face trials. But it's almost like Christians are constantly looking for a fight. Just looking for an argument. Can't wait to bow up on somebody and let her rip. Maybe our first response should be, how can I use this opportunity to be a witness for Jesus? So let me illustrate. I'm sure if you've been reading a Longview paper or watching the television, the situation about the White Oak ISD, according to the Washington Times, the Washington Times is writing about White Oak. The Washington Times says a student at White Oak High School recorded Principal Dan Knoll one morning giving his thought for the day, which included a Bible passage, and turned the recording over to atheist activists. Now, the world's watching. How are we going to respond? We can get bit out of shape, and we can say some things that we might regret, but let me quote the superintendent, Mr. Gilbert, in his words of wisdom. He says... This is an attempt to draw us into a contest of words. This group and others like it are wanting us to provide them with negative quotes to use in the promotion of their agenda. Finally, this will not promote the values we hold so dear to assail those that disagree with the gospel. Don't get drawn into a game of words that has no winner. Please do not waste your time and effort on these few detractors. You're saying, well, Richie, we got to stand for our rights. No. We need to stand for Jesus. Our rights are not important. We gave up our rights when we gave the Lord the right to come into our hearts. So sometimes we get upset because we're getting cheated, and we need to stand and be witnesses for Jesus I'm all for taking a stand. I'm all for preaching Jesus. But I think we need to do it in such a way and remember that trials are an opportunity. I have another one. To witness for Jesus. And I put this on here. And Christians are always, always on trial. People are always watching us. Looking for some reason to badmouth us. Looking for some reason to bring us down. Listen, folks, we're not on trial for being here today. Nobody's going to get upset because of our attendance. We're not on trial for reading the Bible. We're not on trial for loving people. We're on trial when people think that we're trying to force something down them. Trials are an opportunity to witness for Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul did. I'm on trial today. Because I believe in the resurrection. I'm on trial because of what Jesus did. He was raised from the dead. And that's where we need to stand. Listen, folks, you're going to face trials. You're going to have trials. There's going to be situations this week, today. There's going to be all kinds of situations in your life where you're going to be on trial. You need to stop and say, okay, Lord, how can I use this trial, this situation, as an opportunity to show people you through me. You see, people don't need to see us. They need to see Jesus working in us. Because when we respond a different way, 
When we respond the way God wants us to respond, when we respond the way Jesus wants us to respond, they're going to say, wow, there's something different about you. Paul was on trial. We're going to be on trial. And we need to take advantage of those opportunities to witness for Jesus. So when you go to lunch today, you need to be a witness for Jesus. And when you see a waiter or waitress that's having a pretty bad day, why don't you take advantage of that opportunity and be a witness for Jesus? And you've seen situations where a waiter or a waitress is getting abused by another table. Take advantage of that opportunity and be a witness for Jesus and say something nice to those people. And when you go to work this week, there's going to be people that badmouth you and say things that you really don't want to hear. Take advantage of that opportunity to be a witness for Jesus. How would Jesus want me to respond? How can I promote Jesus in this situation? In fact, we offer the invitation of Jesus Christ today. It's an opportunity for you to be a witness for Jesus. Anytime you respond to Jesus, anytime you obey Jesus, you're being a witness that His agenda is way more important than your agenda, that being obedient to Him is way more important than being obedient to yourself. So you have an opportunity today to be baptized, to put on the name of Jesus so that you can be a witness for Jesus so that now your identity is no longer you. Your identity is a Christ follower. If you need to respond to that opportunity to be baptized, can I encourage you to do that as we stand and sing? Would.